This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. And I'm, I'm really excited that we're going to be welcoming uh, Butler Snow attorney Frank Rosenblatt today to talk about military law. Uh, you may recall that we had a request from a caller to do a show on military law and justice. And, and I think we got the best person to talk about it. Um, it's great to have Mr. Rosenblatt on the show. And would you please talk a little bit about your background, Frank? Good morning. Good morning. Glad to be Glad here. To be here. And, and I, I, had I had an exciting, an exciting period, period of, time of time in the military, military. Um, um, before I came here to Mississippi. I started in felony prosecution in uh, Fort Carson, Colorado. I did uh, pursuit and arrest of war criminals in Bosnia-Herzegovina and uh, helped turn them over to an international criminal tribunal in The Hague. Um, I worked on countering violent extremism in Indonesia. I helped prosecute terrorism suspects uh, inside the Iraqi criminal justice system. And in my final four years, I worked in criminal defense of American soldiers. Um, in one case I was assigned, we didn't know at the time, but it ended up becoming the, the most publicized uh, court-martial in American history, the case of uh, Sergeant Bo Bergdahl. Yes, and you've also written books and articles on military justice and, and received awards, spoken at The Hague, as I understand as well. So. It really is an honor to have you on the show today, and and now you now you're a, a private lawyer with Butler Snow, um, and how are military courts and and civilian laws different, generally? Well, in the military truly is a separate society. There, there aren't really the equivalent of, of uh, civil courts uh, inside the military. There, there may be some sort of ad hoc administrative boards. But the criminal court system in the military, that, that's the military's main court. And I, I think when you go in and watch that, you'd, you'd find it would look a lot like our, our criminal courts um, out in the community um, with some interesting differences. Uh, for example, everyone is— uh, is wearing their uniform, which basically has your resume uh, on your chest. And the rules and, and procedures are, are very similar. The docket is generally uh, not as crowded. And the military is able to try some of the same crimes, murder, rape, robbery, but also some unique military crimes that are important for uh, the, the discipline of the military body, such as uh, AWOL or desertion. You know, if you if you walk away from your job at Walmart, uh, you, you can't be prosecuted for that. But if you do it in the military, you know, we, we have uh, urgent needs to have our soldiers, sailors, and airmen uh, show up to work and have the proper discipline. So 
some of those disciplinary aspects can also be prosecuted. And, and also, one thing that I, I think is, is so interesting, it, it's not just, uh, not just the, the crimes and the disciplinary offenses, but people from the military come from all walks of life, and, and there are really these uh, competing conceptions of, of uh, you know, who is privileged, who is an insider, who shows honor, who shows bravery, and who shows cowardice. And, and a lot of those questions are fleshed out inside military courtrooms. So if you can get on the base and if you can get in and watch the proceedings, uh, they are a, a great deal of fun. Well, that, and it, it's probably tougher to get on the base now than it, than it, than it was, say, pre-9-11, I would imagine, but uh, to, to do that. Can, can civilians come and watch those cases? The the requirements in the First Amendment and the Sixth Amendment uh, to open courts do apply to the military, but there are some practical problems with that. Uh, you know, military bases uh, have guards at the entrances, and uh, so. But there there have been ways to get uh, members of the media, uh, family members, victims, and others who are interested in the outcome of court proceedings uh, to be able to go and see what's going on. Well, frankly. Uh is there special training? I, I, I know you, you have an LLM, uh, and, and could you talk a little bit about some of the special training uh, for lawyers who serve in the armed forces? Yes. After uh, first, military lawyers must uh, complete their ABA accredited uh, legal training and and pass um, become a member of a state bar. Um, it doesn't matter which state because they'll be engaged in federal practice. And from there, they'll go to um, a few months of, of military training. And the purpose of that is twofold. One is to learn the unique aspects of, of the military system, and which may not be as commonly trained in law school. But another important aspect is that the, the military lawyers are military, and they need to learn the, the basics so that they can uh, fit in and, and, you know, show the same discipline of the soldiers, sailors, and airmen and, and, and Marines, um, and that they can do the soldier tasks, because uh, our military lawyers don't just sit in headquarters uh, filing briefs. They also uh, join the military units on um, deploying for military operations, and so they need to be able to have basic military proficiencies, including in their firearms and navigation and, and vehicles. This morning, we're talking about military law with attorney Frank Rosenblatt. You could send us an email if you have a question, legalterms at mpbonline.org. I'm interested in what you said. So if a person wanted to go to law school, I, I know my kids are in their 20s, and they had a lot of friends who did join the military to pay for college. If you joined the military, would it pay you to go to law school? You know, maybe if you had a, uh, a undergraduate degree already? There are some programs for that. Um, each service uh, has their own, and uh, sometimes uh, the students will start off by trying out a summer internship, just like they would at a law firm or a government agency, and, and see if it's right for them. And there are the kinds of ROTC scholarships that can help with the costs of law school. But uh, beyond that, there's the possibility of, after a certain amount of military service, um, uh, being eligible for the, for the post-9-11 GI Bill, which would provide further educational benefits. 
That's a great question. And, you know, and, and, you know Frank, I mean, when lawyers I mean, deal with uh, the military and you're, 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 you know, somebody's deployed somewhere and, and they're going to have not just maybe criminal issues, most more likely they're going to have civil issues. Maybe, uh, you know, they do go through divorce. They do need, they want to have wills done. Do the do military lawyers help them with some of those civil matters as well? Yes, that's a really important aspect. If if we have soldiers or Marines who are who are out on a deployment, but they they have nagging fears about what's going on back home with a landlord or or with a spouse who wants to leave or with child custody or 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 they're in debt financially, those are things that could uh, be a real distraction from them performing their military duties and accomplishing the mission. So that is one area where military lawyers uh, can help out is providing that sort of uh, civil assistance. Um, some other things that the military lawyers do, um, just like any other complex bureaucracy, there are um, important uh, rules and, and laws that have to be followed, everything from how the military spends its money, its compliance with, uh, with uh, ethics and, uh, and standards of conduct. And, and one of the biggest ones, other than military justice, is the conduct of fact-finding investigations, everything from a, a, a negligent discharge of a firearm to a, a traffic accident and, and other things need to be properly documented. So the, the military lawyers uh, don't always do those investigations, but they do help make sure that uh, they are going to uh, provide the evidence uh, that is needed so that either claims can be adjudicated or an, an investigation into some sort of incident is properly handled. Well, how, how are lawyers assigned? I know you did criminal prosecutions, uh, as you mentioned, but I mean, when you, when you become a military lawyer, are you assigned to do civil work, or do you do both? Are you kind of uh, doing everything? You're doing some criminal stuff and, and some civil? Uh, I, I would say most of the military services now really prefer their lawyers to be jacks of all trades. And there is some wisdom to that, to have a lot of different experience in, in, in many different areas. Because if you if you go off to deploy to uh, East Asia or Africa or, or the Middle East or, or anywhere else, and you're likely to have one lawyer there um, to provide all the assistance to the command, it's very much a general counsel role. And so you can't have someone who says, no, I'm just an environmental lawyer, or no, I'm just a criminal prosecutor, because there are going to be any range of questions that may come up. And for that reason, the military has encouraged um, uh, frequent rotation in assignments so that, um, so that by the time you're a mid-level officer, you have a, a broader uh, range of expertise. Now, the downside to that, though, is has been um, for about the last decade, there's really been a lot of attention and scrutiny on the military's conduct of um, sexual assault, prosecutions, investigations, and how we treat victims. And one of the things that's uh, come out from that is that military lawyers haven't been able to specialize to a way that's really going to inspire the confidence of our civilian leadership that we can, you know, always handle these things um, with the right uh, outcome and, and the level of expertise to properly manage very sensitive situations. We're discussing military courts and laws with our guest attorney, Frank Rosenblatt. You can send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Do you know what armed forces and uniformed forces encompass? I'm going to tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
there we go. Good deal. Good this deal. is great. Thank you, Frank. I mean, it's really awesome. This is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to the whole show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Now, armed forces means... Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guards, and the termed uniformed service means the armed forces and the commissioned corps of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and commissioned corps of the public health service. Did I get that right? You did, but let's not forget our newest brothers and sisters. The Space Force. The guardians of the Space Force. (laughs) Yeah, well, and of course we have a, a an air and space uh, program here at the at, at the law school, and and you know I think twenty years ago people kind of laughed at that idea, and now it's a very popular program. So that's right. This morning that, we are that. talking about military courts and law with attorney Frank Rosenblatt from the law firm of Butler Snow. And and Frank, uh, one one thing, one term that people hear when they when we think about uh, the military and and justice is a court martial. Could you could you take us through generally what a court martial is? Yes, the biggest difference, one difference between a court martial and our, our regular courts is that you know in in the civilian system our, our our judges are fixed and our courts are in place. Whereas in the military, the court hoc, court martial is more of an ad hoc system. The court only exists and the judge is only in session when he or she is ordered to do so by a convening authority who has referred a case specifically for that, and then that court uh, is in session. Um, the courts martial, there are, there are three different kinds. The most serious is the general court martial, which is able to adjudicate. Uh, that's basically a, a felony level of criminal trial. Well, thank you. That's, I, I think that's important because people hear that term, and we really appreciate you uh, explaining that to us. Now, let's, let's talk about some specific issues taking place around military justice, if that's okay. And, for example, what is the Classified Information Procedures Act? Yes, uh, that, uh, or as we call it, uh, SEPA, is, is a way of protecting uh, classified information. Now, 
other lawyers are familiar with ways that information can be protected. For example, you may have business secrets between two business rivals, and you need to enter some sort of protective order to make sure certain information doesn't get out. And other things are maybe law enforcement sensitive. Now, with classified information, that's simply just another category of information that needs to be protected. Specifically, that means information that could be detrimental to national security if it is released. So you're right to mention SEPA, because with the military, when we're off on deployments, when we're doing operations, uh, those things may come up, either as, as proof of a crime or as extenuation or mitigation of a crime. And, you know, sometimes even looking years back, when a veteran wants to make a claim saying they incurred an injury or PTSD, that may be the only information that they're able to seek because uh, the military tends to keep things very classified when they occur on overseas operations. So, yeah, well, how, then how does someone, so, so you mentioned exoneration, so let's say um, it's essential for uh, classified information to be presented on my behalf if I'm a defendant in a military court of justice, and I, and I, I, but, I but it's classified, so how, how does that work? Well, that's what I think leads to the, the thorniest problem with the use of classified information. Usually, when uh, one of my clients gets in trouble, the first thing that's going to happen is they're likely to lose their security clearance. But in order to defend themselves, they may need certain information. And in fact, nobody would have a, a greater need to know than that person who is on trial facing charges. And so that leads to a predicament. You know, the lawyer, we may be members of good standing in our bar, and so we may, we may be eligible for the kind of security clearance that is needed to view that information. But that's not enough, because it's our clients who are facing criminal cases that they bear the decision on whether to testify, on whether to plead guilty, on whether to choose a judge or a jury. And the fourth one that's kind of written throughout the rules is they have the right to determine if they don't trust their lawyer and they want to fire him or her. So those are not decisions that are made at a single point in time, but everything leads up to that. It's not good enough for uh, the lawyer to say to the client, hey, the information they've got on you is really bad, but I can't tell you about it. So the, the job of a defense lawyer in dealing with SEPA is to find ways to seek for that information to be declassified or to somehow get the client the access that they need um, in order that they can meaningfully make those choices so that the client can lead their own defense. Well, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the civil world, the civil criminal world, uh, and also the civil uh, trial world, you know, there's in-camera inspection by a judge to see whether information should be entered into evidence or whether, you know, if, if it's attorney-client privilege, for example, or something like that. Do, is there a process like that in the military uh, to, for someone to review the information and see to what extent this classified information should be provided? Yes, there are those in-camera reviews, and there is also the invocation of privilege by high-level officials. But I think the best way to illustrate this, rather than talking through the rule, is I'd like to talk about a person. So once upon a time, there was a man named Erwin uh, Griswold. And did you ever see the RBG movie On the Basis of the Sex? I love that RBG movie, and I'm glad you're talking about it. So please go ahead. Yes. 
It was great. Well, uh, I call him Dean Griswold. He spent about 20 years as the dean at Harvard Law School, an, an illustrious lawyer. He, he started the Blue Book, which is the, uh, the law student and the law clerk's uh, single most used reference on, on how to do citation. While he was um, uh, the dean at Harvard Law School, he famously told uh, RBG while she was a law student there, what makes you think that you are good enough to take the place of a man who could have had your seat? So for Dean Griswold, despite these character faults, he was a brilliant lawyer. He served uh, under two Republican presidents as the Solicitor General, and he argued passionately as the Solicitor General for the United States in the New York Times uh, Pentagon Papers case. He said that— um, you know, the, this was a, a grave threat to national security that the New York Times would release that. The Supreme Court decided against him. But what I think is extraordinary about uh, Dean Griswold is that 15 years later, he admitted that he was wrong. And I think that the lesson that he finally wrote about in 1986 is very true to classified information with the military. And I would like to read what uh, he wrote in the, in the Washington Post in 1986, because the lesson is just as true today. It quickly becomes apparent to any person who has considerable experience with classified material that there is massive overclassification and that the principal concern of the classifiers is not with national security, but rather with governmental embarrassment of one sort or another. There may be some basis for short-term classification while plans are being made or negotiations are going on, but apart from details of weapon systems, there is very rarely any real risk to current national security from the publication of facts relating to transactions in the past, even the fairly recent past. This is the lesson of the Pentagon Papers experience, and it may be relevant now. And and. Dean Griswold's uh, hard-earned lesson just really resonated with me because in dealing with these cases, it's it's so often just you're dealing with information that the client can't see, but they should be able to because there's just really a one-way ratcheting to uh, over-classifying information uh, and things that have nothing to do uh, with national security. I, I think that's because, you know, the military has more security officials than it does historians who support the release, and the public doesn't really have any sort of mechanism like the Freedom of Information Act to enforce the government to properly classify its information. I'm so excited that we've got this peek behind the curtain, because for, I don't know, how much is the military? 5% or less than of our of our population. The rest of us, we don't know anything that goes on, except for movies, and that's probably all wrong. So that's what uh, inspired us to get in, to have you on, is we were t taking, we were doing a show on what the movies and TV get wrong about uh, law procedurals and someone said well what about a few good men and professor gerson and i said ah, we don't know we need someone to come in so that's why that's how we got around to having attorney frank rosenblatt from uh, butler snow join us so this is interesting to to soak up this information and to learn about it but if you have a question we would love for you to email us legal terms at mpbonline.org professor gerson i'm just learning tons me too, and, and I will say, love the uh, reference to RGB, and, 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 and Griswold was not just wrong about the Pentagon Papers, but he, he was wrong about her, too, and of course, she went on to graduate from another law school, uh, 
um, and so, uh, yeah, really. Anyway, so I, we lo we love the movie references. That's a, that was a great one. Um, now let's talk a little bit um, about a different act if we can, and and that is the. Military Justice Improvement and Increasing Prevention Act. Now, what exactly is that? Well, this is seeking to finally resolve something that has been at issue since 1950. And sorry to go that far back, but it's important to understand that in World War II, we sent folks from every walk of life to, to go serve in the armed forces. We sent the privileged and the poor, and they all fought together. And what everyone came back and there was consensus was about was that military justice was a harsh and unnecessarily severe form of justice. That led to reforms and passing in 19. 50, the Uniform Code of Military Justice that exists largely as it does today. Um, that allowed for uh, greater procedural regularity that looked more like uh, civilian criminal trials. But the one part that the Pentagon was able to retain that was most important to them was they said, you can have those procedural reforms, but we insist that commanders will be the ones who make the prosecution decisions, not lawyers. And in the decades since then, other reforms have come along, independent defense counsel, military judges um, with, with judge-like powers. But we are still dealing with the issue of uh, the commander's powers to do this. And we're not talking about every commander. Most commanders do have a lot of disciplinary power. There's powers for minor punishments that they have uh, called non-judicial punishment. Um, they can take other actions, corrective training. They can uh, administrate separation procedures from the military. But it has been uh, very important to the Pentagon that um, the highest-level commanders retain the power to decide what cases to prosecute. And um, the other side of that is who to exonerate. The commanders have that power to say um, that this serious crime will face a court-martial, and in others, um, that this will not. And one example of how that, that second part would be bad really is what led us to our current efforts. An, uh, an Air Force general who was an F-16 pilot um, reviewed a, a lieutenant colonel, another F-16 pilot, who was convicted of rape. And the general said, you know what, I've reviewed this evidence. I know this F-16 pilot is a, a good person. I don't think he could have done this. I'm going to wipe out the conviction. He had that power as the commander, and that led to um, a lot of attention in Washington, D.C. The generals eventually lost their powers to fully wipe out results of courts, but commanders still do have the power to decide who gets prosecuted, and that remains problematic in particular with sexual assault cases. We've got an email that we're going to get to after the break. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking with attorney Frank Rosenblatt about legal issues within the military. And Frank isn't just a lawyer. We'll tell you another facet of Mr. Rosenblatt when we come back. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you subscribe to our podcast. Lots of different podcasting platforms. You pick one, you put it on your smart device, touch a plus or something that takes you to a way to search for podcasts, type in In Legal Terms, because of course that's the podcast you want to subscribe to, and you'll find our image, you touch it, and then you can be notified when any new episodes are loaded up. This morning we're talking about how the courts work within the U.S. military with our guest, attorney Franklin Rosenblatt from the firm of Butler Snow. And I don't know who needs to hear this, but Mr. Rosenblatt co-wrote Military Justice Cases and Materials, third edition, published in 2020. So I guess that's part of what he did during his pandemic. It'll introduce you to military justice while also deepening your understanding of criminal law and procedures, comparative law, international law, and constitutional law. And we have a phone call to get to. We're going to go to Water Valley and speak with James. James, thank you so much for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Well, I had a question about the levels of um, military justice between non-judicial punishment and a uh, general court-martial, you know, like a a summary court-martial and a a special court-martial. Did he want to say anything about them uh, before he... uh, you know, to elucidate, elucidate a little bit more about uh, the various uh, possibilities in in the military. Well, I, I can tell that you're a, a military man. Uh, where did you serve? Uh, well, I've, I've been out of uniform 50 years, but what, what I was going to say is that I uh, I have served. Luckily, I've never had anything to do with the general court martial, but unfortunately, I've served on several special court martials and even conducted a summary court martial. And uh, uh, I just wondered if uh, anybody had an interest in uh, in, in what. Uh, what is more common in the, in the military than who would get a special court martial <laughs> well a, a special court is is not so special um, but James gives up a, a good point of those uh, intermediate uh, courts that we didn't talk about much these would not be affected by that current legislation that's being proposed by Senator Gillibrand that only concerns the most serious general courts martial for felony offenses a summary court martial um, in the U- United States Supreme Court is, has ruled is a- actually not a criminal trial um, so that's um, very similar in ways to the non-judicial punishment, and it can pose uh, minor sanctions, including up to 30 days of, uh, of confinement. And the special court-martial is, is a little bit more than that. That can impose—that um, can—is before a judge— it may be before a panel, which is the military jury, but the, the punishment is limited at only one year of confinement, and that type of court uh, cannot uh, result in the dismissal of an officer. Yeah, with, with enlisted people back then, uh, uh, a uh, 
special could give uh, a BCD, but not uh, uh, a dishonorable. That is correct. Has it changed any? Uh, that sounds right, no? James. Yeah. Okay, thank no, you, no James. Change in the past finished for 50 years. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. We love hearing people's experiences and that help us bring new light. We do have an email. This is from Wayne. He says, hello, the scenario is a ranking officer ordered a newly enlisted to stand in the summer sun without cover, no hat or shade. If a couple of decades down the road, someone in that punished group developed melanoma, then is there a liability? No one chose to report to the military doctor due to our sunburns. Uh, well, that's a good law school problem for a military law class. I think one thing that you're thinking about is there going to be any sort of uh, disciplinary repercussions, and certainly maybe not years down the line when everyone has, has moved on. But um, there there are parts of the code that uh, prohibit um, the sort of abusive conduct towards uh, subordinates. Uh, that is actionable. That could result in uh, some sort of discipline of anyone who, who hazes, harasses, harasses, abuses, or unnecessarily puts a subordinate uh, in a sort of harm's way. But I think another part of your question is that soldier has incurred some sort of injury from their military service, and is that compensable? And that's where you get into the the VA system. The, the VA would take over. Uh, that is the department, not the Department of Defense, that is responsible for um, the proper care of our war-wounded, including our veterans who, who didn't serve at war but incurred injuries in service. And the way that works is it, it's not meant to be adversarial with lawyers involved. And so if someone incurs an injury in service or reports it within a year afterwards, the VA presumptively says that was incurred in service. And I think what would happen in the scenario that you just described a couple decades later, the VA would look back and say, you've got to make the case for why this injury you're claiming. Show us the proof that this was incurred in service and not in the two decades since. Proof. <laughs> Yeah, Professor uh, Gerson, let's uh, resume our uh, discussion that we had before the, the break. I think we were talking about the Military Justice Improvement and Increasing Prevention Act. That's, that's great. That's because especially since the, the, the caller, the previous caller had said not much has changed in 50 years. So, all right, so let's talk a little bit about that. Has that law, uh, has that act become, even become law? Uh, this is not uh, law yet, but, um, you know, if you pay attention to the tone and tenor of, of Washington, um, what I think is really remarkable is you finally have a bill that Republicans and Democrats seem to be able to agree upon. Uh, Senator Gillibrand from New York has been uh, has been pushing for this and, and introduced the legislation a number of times uh, in the last decade. And this year, there are at least 67 senators who support this change. Uh, this bill would uh, divert um, the decision-making for the most serious felony offenses, take that out of the hands of commanders, and, and allow it to be trained and experienced military lawyers, people who are subject to professional responsibility codes and have expertise in, in criminal justice. The part that's not resolved in this is whether that change would just apply to sexual assault offenses or to all felony offenses. 
And another aspect of this has been um, the Pentagon has been extremely resistant. Um, I think it's a moment in our civil-military relations. This is the kind of bill that holds top generals in check, that doesn't allow them to exonerate favored, favored subordinates. And so usually the way this goes is, Congress makes the rules, and the military follows them, and the military may give its advice when asked. In this case, however, you have the Pentagon lobbying pretty hard behind the scenes uh, to make sure that this uh, is somehow able to be diverted from a floor vote and only taken up uh, later in the Senate Armed Service Committee. Well, it seems to me, I mean, this is interesting where, because we've got, you know, this happening in the military and in terms of military uh, legislation, but, I mean, there also seems to me that there's a parallel between Senator Gillibrand's proposed legislation, uh, which deals with military accountability, and for police misconduct, such as the Chauvin trial that we just uh, saw, just completed, just, uh, we just got a, a verdict uh, fairly recently and, and a sentence. So, are, are there parallels between those? I think that that is that's an interesting one worth talking about. Um, you know, we finally saw with uh, uh, the Chauvin trial that a um, a police officer was held accountable uh, for his acts, and and so this is about um, who gets um, who gets the privilege to be exonerated. And if if you take that the way the military is doing things to the uh, the police situation, it would be a way that I think most people would find patently unacceptable. We do not want our police chiefs to make the prosecution decisions about police misconduct. It is hard enough now when district attorneys are able to do it. And, you know, we still have work to do in advancing our methods of civil rights enforcement and, and addressing qualified immunity. And so to take that over to the military— um, that comparison with the police chief is is not favorable. Right now, it is that commanding officer who is calling the shots on who gets prosecuted and who gets exonerated. And, you know, the Pentagon has reacted to this in interesting ways. At first, they were opposed—they were perceived as turning a blind eye to sexual assault complaints because they often occurred among trusted subordinates who may have served with the commander on military operations. And after the criticism came, the commander said, well, we'll show that we're serious about this, and then they started bringing everything to a general court-martial, including cases that really lacked merit, and, you know, that's not a good thing either. We, we don't need to be putting people um, through the serious trials um, who um, there's just not the kind of probable cause and evidence that they even committed that offense. We still have a little bit of time left. We're going to go to Wesley, who's called in from Snowflake. Thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Um, thank you, Councillor Rosenblatt, for joining the show today. On January 6th, a, a subset of those that stormed the Capitol were active military and I was wondering, will both a military court and, you know, outside of the military both have a shot at these guys, or uh, what do you think? Thank you. 
Well, that's a great question. And one area this gets at is, you know, who gets a bite at the apple? And and for those who did, who were there at the Capitol and committed criminal offenses, um, many of those cases are being taken up in civilian court in Washington, D.C., some in civilian courts where, where those folks live around the country. If they serve in the active military, they may also be subject to a military court. And often there's uh, some sort of decision between those two about what would be the most appropriate form. But the military, um, it, it does have the reach to soldiers who may even be uh, on a break and, and not in uniform and not as part of their military duties. If they are on active duty, then they can be brought in for a military court for, for that uh, type of offense. Professor Gershon, this just reminds me, I've had kids who've gone through college when someone commits a crime and they're a student, a lot of times it isn't reported to civilian police. It's handled within the the university, or sometimes there's an argument on who would have jurisdiction. That may be, may be a future show. We take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Besides our wonderful show, where can you get topical and various current event blog posts? I'm going to tell you next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law at 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays. Following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedy, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. So from COVID information to tax tips and explanations of Mississippi executive orders, 
Butler Snow's blogs might have some useful information for you. We're here talking with attorney Frank Rosenblatt from the firm of Butler Snow, and we've been learning about military courts and military law. This is so great, Liz. I'm really so happy we have Frank on the show today, and, and there's so much we could talk about. But one one of the current issues that, that we are thinking about generally in America is racial justice and inequality. And to some extent, the military deserves credit for being one of the first major organizations in the country to actually integrate under, under particularly Harry Truman. But what are, are those issues still prevalent in the military? And not just prevalent. I think in the last two years, we've realized that this is actually at crisis levels. Um, some recent, we just didn't have the data before, but you know, now that we're starting to see this, uh, we see that, uh, for example, black soldiers and are more than twice as likely to be criminally investigated as white soldiers. More than twice as likely to face uh, general courts martial. Um, uh, racial uh, different racial groups have uh, reported a, a lack of confidence in the equal um, in the EO process, um, and that's basically the military equivalent of EEO, about reporting racial harassment, discrimination, and retaliation for making complaints. Um, the military's EO process falls under the chain of command. Um, it does not inspire confidence. In fact, respondents to surveys have said that uh, they feel they are more likely to be retaliated against for making a complaint to the EO office than they are to actually see the person who is uh, harassed or discriminating them uh, being punished. There have been some other troubling things with uh, for the the way the the generals are in charge of prosecuting cases that I talked about now. A number of cases have come up recently where um, all white juries um, consistently being picked for for black defendants. And in the civilian court, uh, you would have Batson. You're able to make challenges. And the military does have Batson as well. But that's only for the prosecutor who's sitting in the courtroom, whereas those members were actually picked in the back room by that convening authority. And uh, Batson is not able to reach out to their conduct. So um, we're in a tough spot right now with... Um, with uh, racial discrimination and particularly in military justice. And that's why the Senator Gillibrand effort is increasingly looking at uh, those sorts of racial disparities and not just uh, uh, sexual assault cases. And so and now as the military, now that, I mean, obviously this, having these facts is really important and this information is important. Is, is the military internally dealing with some of these issues of uh, uh, justice and inequality in terms of race? We had all of the top service lawyers testify to Congress and say, this is a really bad problem. We're, we're forming a task force, and we're going to do something about it. Those results, whatever it may be, uh, have not been seen yet. But what we do know is that the Pentagon seems no matter what the crisis is, they are never going to get on board with the idea of, of pulling the commanders away from making uh, those decisions, even if that is causing problems of racial disparities and, um, and uh, a loss of legitimacy in how we're dealing with sexual assault. And, and so, so there's issues also in terms of gender, or they, with the, with the uh, the changes by uh, by the Congress, address those as well. 
Well, that's the concern. Uh, you know, Senator Gillibrand wants to to shift all felonies to independent military prosecutors, and and some are trying to have it both ways and say we support it for sexual assault cases, but not for other felonies. We want the chain of command to be in charge of those. And what some of my colleagues are increasingly writing about is the problem that basically is going to create is a, a system of of pink courts, since uh, sexual assault offenses uh, are are more frequently the cases involving women in the armed forces, and you would have one court system for women and another court system for everything else, a, 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 a clash and rivalry between and the bureaucratic complexity of operating two different uh, criminal court systems. What? So, I mean, there's so much. I wish we, I really do wish we had two hours, because there, we have to have you back again, Frank, because this has been a great discussion. But I know we don't have much time, Liz, but can we, can we turn our focus to the role of military uh, in service people's rights to political activism? Can, can uh, people serving in the armed forces and the uniformed service uh, uh, express political opinions, or are they, or are they more limited? Well, uh, that really that picks up on what I think uh, Wesley was asking about before. Um, I have had clients uh, recently, uh, some clients who have been involved with, uh, in, in they, they go off in the evening and, and they want to get involved with activities with Black Lives Matter. Um, another client was uh, posting some things on Facebook that were perceived as being in support of the, uh, of, of the folks who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. So, you know, the, the military right now is 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 trying to get that um, speech and association certainly it is easy if someone is a member of a known extremist organization that that can be easily dealt with but um, you're seeing increasingly the military trying to wrestle with uh, the polarization that is in our country it is not um, a, a a criminal offense for someone to uh, follow QAnon theories on YouTube um, but uh, for example and, and sometimes the military is able to deal with these things in ways that aren't direct at the conduct. For example, let's say a soldier wants to, to hang up a, a Confederate flag in, in the barracks room uh, that, that's looking out. Um, they are not going to be charged with being a, uh, a member of the Confederacy or a sympathizer or anything like that, but they will be ordered, you need to take that down in the next— 10 minutes, and if they do not do that, then, then they can be charged with disobedience of a lawful order. So um, the military is trying to find ways to deal with these vexing problems. We do. We did run out of time. Thank you, Fr Franklin Rosenblatt from Butler Snow, for being on the show today. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Professor. That's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. Our call screener for today has been Java Chapman, and Jay White is our wonderful engineer. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts somewhere from his house near the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill, but we hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.